listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hello, everyone. My name is Vanzel Burke. I am the CEO of the Burke Management Firm. Um, we are a management company as well as a full-service production house. Um, some of the talent we represent, uh, stars like Rory Jones Jr., the boxer, Dorian Wilson, Todd Bridges, uh, Darius McCreary, um, all big television stars. And um, as a production house, we have produced uh, one of the top major films we produce is uh, Karen, K-A-R-E-N, big film we did back in 2020 during the pandemic, distributed in 2021. Uh, We've done a few other projects since then. Uh, Currently, we are shooting a series called Cocaine Sisters, Um, 14 episodes. We have already finished eight episodes that are now released on Urban Flicks. TV. Uh, so we have two shows that's premiering on that network right now. Uh, Cocaine Sisters is one of them. Vansel Burke, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. And I did not know about Cocaine Sisters. Yes. It's I, do, <laughs> I do have pages and pages of notes here. So I know we're going to have an incredible conversation and one that will be valuable for the listening audience and the viewing audience on YouTube. Don't want to leave you guys out. But before I get into that and talk more about your projects, including Cocaine Sisters, let's rewind and make sure we do our job here and uh, let this audience know a little bit more about you. So I'm going to read a little bit from a bio. And, you know, this is the internet. So if anything's not accurate, just amend to it, say, hey, that's not true anymore or whatever. But uh, this is this is what we have. All right. So Vanzil Burke is the CEO of the Burke Management Firm based in Beverly Hills, California. The firm, founded in 2007, is a talent management agency inspired and founded on on strong core values, excuse me, of integrity, honesty and trustworthiness. After graduating from Florida A&M University with a computer science degree, Vanzel relocated to Los Angeles, California, to pursue his dream of becoming a Hollywood talent manager. This has allowed him to foster reliable and trustworthy relationships with key stakeholders in the film, TV, music, and other entertainment-related sectors. Vanzel believes that when the business is handled properly, the talented individuals themselves can effectively focus on improving their craft, producing true art. His visionary ideas and seeking to improve the entertainment business, coupled with his inextinguishable passion for empowering the youth, are integral in this type of environment. As the CEO, Vanzel oversees all of the operations at Berg Management and ensures that the company values are implemented in every aspect. His brother, Victor, great guy in his own right, serves as president of Burke Management and Vanzel, I would love to start with who took you way, way back in time here. I'd love, I'd love to start with 
who was the Funky Fresh crew? Oh, <laughs> I got chills. You took me way back. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Funky Fresh crew, man, we were, um, you know, just neighborhood friends, um, including my middle brother. So Victor is my oldest brother, and there's one in the, in the middle of us. His name is Vance. All of us have the same initials, V. TB. Um, so Vance and I were in a rap group. Uh, Vance was the lead rapper and it was eight of us all together in the group. It was a big group uh, of all friends and, and, and everybody was related, meaning then my brother and then it was another two brothers and then two cousins. And then so everybody was like related. But again, we just grew up together and we started this rap group and the rap group ended up being something. Um, we started, uh, we got a song put on the radio in middle Georgia, which that was a big deal, you know, because to have a song on the radio was like huge. Um, we were hired to perform at all of the, um, local surrounding high schools for, uh, the proms. So we would be, um, coming do this special entertainment. Well, Victor was our manager. <laughs> so, so um, because we're from a very small town um, and our families are well known in the city, uh, my oldest brother used our, our, shall I say, influence in the city to pull some strings. So he went to the funeral home, said, hey, guys, can when we are doing events at night, can we use the limo? So we could drive. So we, we were driven around in the limo and, and they would have the group in the limo. And so it just made us feel like stars. My brother made us feel like stars. And I just always remember how he took care of us and how he made us feel. So uh, that was the Funky Fresh crew. My role in the group, um, I so I'm, I'm short, right? We all are short in my family, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was. 13, I was 13, but we said that I was 11 or 10 or <laughs> and it worked. So, so I was, I had the uh, confidence of a 13 year old, but I looked like I was 10 or 11. So that's what we went with for show purposes. So you see this little 10 year old kid on stage, um, grab the mic and start rapping with his little Jerry girl it was like, so I was kind of like the show stiller at the end of the show. Um, so that was the Funky Fresh crew. And that's kind of what got us started um, in the entertainment industry. That's amazing. What became of the Funky Fresh crew? Did, did, how did you guys, did you guys break up amicably or was there like a falling? Yeah. So for those, I'm going to tell my age a little bit, but um, if we, had we kept going, we was most we would have most certainly been like a known group. Um, yeah. We hit right around the time that the group ABC hit. Mm-hmm. ABC was back in the day. We they came like right after us, but we were being looked at also. But at the same time, my middle brother, who was kind of like the leader of the group, because he's always been like that leader guy. To, to this day, he's still that guy. So he started focusing more on his um, um, athletic career in high school. Mm-hmm. And so that became more middle school. That, But that kind of became his focus is playing football, wrestling, and like being, being an, an athlete. So because that took the um, place of the music, 
it kind of, we started going our separate ways. By this time, my oldest brother, Victor, was in college um, at Albany State University. And so, you know, we didn't have my oldest brother to push, guide, lead us, my middle brother to kind of keep the ball rolling. And then I was just like going with whatever they did. So uh, that's kind of how we kind of went our separate ways. But we all are still friends to this day. What's your favorite bar? Do you, do you remember your favorite bar from back then? Yeah, you want me to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my, my rap would go. It's so embarrassing. My rap would go, I'm the little guy that didn't rap last time. So don't get surprised if I bust a rhyme. I don't like boys, and it's like that. I'll slap them in the face and dad them to slap back. I said, I'm only 11. I used to be seven. When I die, I'm going to keep on rocking till I go to heaven. So don't get upset or even mad. I may be little, but I know I'm bad. That's dope. Yeah, you say, what's your favorite bar? That was the only one. That was my rap, and that was it. That's all I said. Every show, that was it. People have to understand that, like, at the time that this was like popping, that would have been like a, like a great verse. Like, like, you know, rap hadn't become as linguistic as it is now. I think now we're, I I think now we're like post-linguistic where people are just mumbling a little bit and and sort of like the the deliveries about, it's like this purposeful, uh, almost uh, uh, drug induced sort of, sort of slur. Yeah. And it's on purpose. Cause when you talk, when you meet these people, they don't talk like that. Correct. And, and, you know, when me and you came up in hip hop, you wouldn't want your voice to be different than your rap voice. Correct. Cause that would be coming incorrect. You know what I mean? Correct. To me, that's what made uh, like a guy like Buster Rhymes so powerful is that yes. you thought he had this affected voice and you talk to him. No, he sounds like that. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Real life. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, back then, that would have been, that, that would have been, I appreciate you doing that. That was, that oh, was man, that's in, incredible. <laughs> and I can relate to the showstopper part too. Um, you know, going out at the end, I used to have a singing group named Solace and mm. my, I was the falsetto guy. So I was the guy who would sing all the high notes. Yeah. You know, I was like that Mark Nelson, Sean Stockman guy on the group. Yeah. And at the end of every show, my job was to go, uh, to the front of the stage and then get on one knee because yep. <laughs> we're an R&B group. Yep, and then I would, and then I would sing ending runs in like a falsetto. And, but I had a co-founder of the group with me. His name was Jeff and Jeff would, would not like to see all the ladies, you know, uh, swooning over me. Correct. Right. Okay. You know, they, they, they didn't like that. They used to call me Albie Shore. And they didn't want it. <laughs> and so they, they didn't want me to have those Albie Shore moments. <laughs> and so, yeah. Well, he would get on one knee. So I'd be over there singing about, be singing my little piece. And I looked, I'd look at my peripheral vision. Yeah. I looked to my left. And it'd be just on one knee over here, too, <laughs> singing and doing runs. <laughs> so I was like, oh, we, we're, we're we're destined for failure because yeah. we we can't even get past the little stuff. Yeah, you know. Man. So I I'm totally with you. I I get it. Oh, totally. I appreciate you indulging that that little part of your life for me because um, I relate so much to it. But I I promise you, we'll get on talent management and film here. Man, I thought we'd go rap some more. I was ready. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Now I got your juices going. Um, yeah. 
Your first client, I, correct me if I'm wrong, was your mom. My my mom and my niece were were our first clients. Yeah, uh, I just couldn't. How did you convince your mom to let you represent her? So that takes. So you have to kind of understand how did we end up in LA. Yeah. So my 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 middle brother had a child when he was in college. Okay. My mom and dad immediately took her so my brother could finish school and his girlfriend at the time can go on about her career and life as well. So my mom and dad took this baby. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed, I, I noticed right off just like as a child before she could walk, she was very talented. I've always had that gift to just spot it. So I could see it in her. She just would smile and just like it. And as she got older, she would walk and just all this personality. Yeah. So, um, we lose my dad in 99, which that was tough. We lost, we lost him. So when we lost dad, um, I got to get my mom busy. So I say, mom, you know, why don't we put my niece, her name is Valea with a V also put her in acting classes. So she goes, puts her in acting classes in Atlanta. Um, we live in from Dublin, Georgia, which is about a two hour drive. So uh, Valea is in acting classes in Atlanta. Meanwhile, my mom was an English teacher at my high school. My mom also was a drama teacher. Mm-hmm. So every year she would put on a spring play and a fall play in, at the high school. So she did that acting, um, you know, put or acting coach put it on these plays. So in the yearbook, and I'm going to bring this all the way back around, but in the yearbook, uh, back in the day, you have your picture and people will sign the yearbook. Right. So on my mom's, in the yearbook for my mom's last year of teaching, they asked her, what do you want to do when you retire? She says, well, I want to move to Hollywood and become an actress. And she put that in the book, not really realizing manifestation, not really understanding the power of words, not really understanding what you want, write it, and it will come to pass. It really does work that way. So she wrote that and said it and not realizing it was really going to come to pass because, you know, we had no idea we would end up in Hollywood. Right. Fast forward to dad passes. Um, I'm now um, in Atlanta and my niece goes to New York to, to do a uh, competition called IMTA. She was five years old. IMTA stands for International Modeling and Talent uh, Association. And it happens once in New York, once in L.A., twice a year for really kids. So my niece goes to the one in New York, ages in L.A., say she's brilliant, she should be in Hollywood, and mom, meaning my, my mom, you should be in Hollywood too. So they call me in Atlanta and say, hey, we were told we should be in Hollywood, but there's no way we can do that. But it's just impressive that they think we should go. I say, mom, I'm going to call you back, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute, Chris. But I hang up the phone, and I resign mm-hmm. from my job right on the spot. Wow. That- because I already knew in my my degrees in computer science, I was working for a company in the field of computer science, um, and I wasn't happy. I was not fulfilled. I was making great money, single in Atlanta, had a brand new convertible BMW, uh, money, but not happy, not fulfilled. And I just lost my dad. So, you know, um, so I'm like, there's nothing holding me back. 
I want to be a manager. I want to be in Hollywood. And I needed a sign. And that was the sign. So I quit my job that day. I walk out. I call my mom. I said, Mom, I just resigned. We're going to Hollywood. She starts crying. Why'd you do that? That didn't make sense. Why? So we leave. And I'm like, let's go. And so we pack up and we move to L.A. Um, my mom and my niece became my first clients. And I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but we, you know, got our own uh, actors access and backstage and, and had her doing some background work. And um, she did a John Legend music video and little things like that, little back. But I didn't know I was doing I didn't know anybody. Uh, but I just jumped in and got and got started. Uh, and that was in 2002, between 2002 and 2004. That is an incredible story. That's an incredible. Thank you for sharing that because we have had a few people that make those type of commitments. We had a previous guest named Emil Giardo, who grew up in East LA, uh, had a tech job in San Francisco. He said he was making a ton of money, basically almost doing nothing and just walked out the same way you did. I just wonder, I know you were looking for a sign, but how did you know that was the sign? Cause I literally asked that day for a sign. <laughs> I, I asked, I asked, when I was speaking to someone earlier today, <clears throat> um, Chris, you know, I, I, I meditate every day and I talk to God and, and I, and when I talk to God, I literally say, God, show me the way, make it plain, make it clear. I don't want to try to figure out, wait, was that it? Was that the sign? Make it plain, make it clear. And that's what that was. I always ask, just make it plain, make it clear. And so I was literally like, it was big problems at my job with me. Um, the company knew I wasn't happy. They probably were going to fire me to be, you know, one, because I just wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't in it and I wasn't committed. And so I'm like, I need a sign. Like God, yeah. just give me a sign. And I'm telling you, Chris, I, after I said that, I sat at my computer within two or three minutes, my phone rings and it was my mom. So I knew what that was. I knew, I knew, I knew right away. I'm like, that's it. That's it. And when I, when I resigned, my boss said, wait, what is, what's happening? What are you, what are you, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to move to uh, Hollywood. And he said, when did you decide that? And I said, uh, five minutes ago. <laughs> They thought I was really going through it and grieving, you know, because my right. dad is like, we know you're going through a lot. You grieve. I'm like, no, you know, my dad always said, once I graduate from college, I can do whatever I want to do, but I got to graduate from college first. And he says, like, he says, then you can take your degree anywhere. And so I said, I don't have kids. I'm not married. I have a degree. I have, you know, dad left us money. So I'm like, I have resources. What am I afraid of? So I'm out of here. That was it. What a story. Uh, you mentioned that you were working in, in, in IT. Uh, I'm curious, in majored in computer science at Florida A&M. Um, great university, by the way. Uh, yes. yes. Have you, fast forward to today, has that background helped you at all in celebrity management? And if so, in what ways? Mm-mm. Use it for someone's computer. Like, oh, talk to Vanessa. I'm like, don't, (laughs) don't, 
Don't talk to me. You gotta waste everybody's time. You don't want to be tech support. <laughs> nah, nah. I, I, so, so the 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 reality is this: I went to Florida A and M University to major in biology pre med. Mm. That was my so. Let me let me go back. I went to Florida A and M University because of the March One Hundred. Let's be clear. Okay. Yep. So the March One Hundred, the world's greatest marching band, right? Hundred percent. So my dad took me to see the band in like ninety one. I was like in eighth, ninth grade or whatever. I see the band perform in Atlanta, and when I saw the band perform, I've always been the kind of kid that once I see something and I know that's what I want, like. I'm going to make it happen. Like, that's it. So once I put my mind to it, so I saw the band perform and I'm like, dad, I got to be in that band. And he was like, all right, son, because I was in high school band anyway. So from that point forward, from ninth grade until I graduated, if my eyes were set on Florida A&M University to be in the March 100. So I go to Florida A&M, I join the marching band, the March 100, best, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Uh, my closest friends were still just like this, band members. We, it's a very special band. Um, anyway, I started uh, majoring in pre-med biology at Florida a University. I was going to be a cardiovascular surgeon. Um, I always said that when I was a kid. I'm going to be a cardiovascular surgeon. Not really realizing entertainment was always my thing. Mm-hmm. So my first semester, Chris, my grades were horrible. I mean... Like I was studying and I was making 30s and 20s. It was horrible. <laughs> Man. So the professor pulled me to the side, said, well, um, got two questions. One, um, you can't do pre-med and be in the marching band. Like you can't do both. And I said, well, that's a problem for me because I chose this university and my mom and dad are paying out-of-state fees. I don't get financial support, financial aid from the state or school, nothing. My parents pay for everything cash. And because I'm out of state, I'm paying, they're paying lots of out of state fees so I can be in this marching band. Um, so that I got to be in this marching band. Like, that's why I came here. She said, okay, why you want to be a doctor? She says, is it because you really want to help people or do you want the financial security that doctors have and that this career can afford? I said, I want the financial security. I, I, I've got to, I've got to have a lifestyle and it's got to, and I know even as, as a young kid, I know that I've always had high expectations of myself and I've always wanted and have been fortunate to have a lifestyle and I need to be able to be, have that. So if I'm a doctor and a surgeon, then I'll be wealthy and I'll be, and she says, this is not for you. <laughs> this is not for you. She says, change your major. And so I talked to my dad and um, and he said, I support that. So it became, um, he said, well, son, you love, I, you love computers um, and you love business. So why don't you major in business and major in computer science? Because computer science, at least you can make good money and you can be secure. And so that's what I decided uh, to major in. So that's how I ended up majoring in computer science. For this international audience that may not know, at a HBSU, the band, you know, historically black school university, the band is a big deal. 
it's not like it is at other public universities or private universities where it just like exists as if it's the glee club. No, at a black university, the band is where you want to be. It's, it's not like you're a character in the movie American pie, uh, (laughs) where you're going to band camp. Correct. Yeah. This Um, this is a big, your audience has ever seen the movie. Um, um, oh my gosh. What's the name of the band movie? I can't believe it. Oh, you're talking about the one with uh, Nick Cannon? Yes. Um, drum Drumline? Drumline. Yep. Yeah. So that so that movie was based on the Florida A&M University March 100. Yep. Um, in fact, most of the band members in that fictitious band were former members of the March 100. Um, so the writer is from Florida A&M University. So, but that gives you a good insight an inside look of what it meant to be a part of that band and in the HBCU. Like that's the culture in black bands and HBCUs. Um, so yeah, that is, that is the culture. It is, it is the place you want to be, as you said. Chris. Yes, sir. What instrument did you play? The trumpet. Trumpet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love the trumpet. It was the, I play piano now, but the trumpet was the first instrument I actually tried to play. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. I um, got discouraged when I was in middle school because this kid told me my lips were too big to play trumpet and I listened to him like a oh, fool. You should not I should not have. Maybe you I'll get back to it. Yeah. Go ahead. What, Why not? What, a, what a hater. But back then the word hater didn't even exist. So yeah, when somebody told you that you just took it to heart. Yep, you're like, you oh, he must, he must be onto something. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you've been doing this a while now. What, what should, a um, when should a creative, you know, for those listening in the audience that, that, are looking for representation, looking for a manager. In your opinion, when should a creative seek a talent manager? So it's a good question. It depends on who you are seeking as a talent manager. Hmm. Now, if you are in my, so all I'm going to be giving is my professional opinion. Okay. It's not the gospel. It is my opinion as a professional in this industry. So in my professional opinion, if you, if, if you are creative and you're trying to get started in this industry, if you have someone that's going to just kind of dedicate all of their time just to you to kind of help you see this thing through and help that career, that'll be good as a, as a, as a manager. But if you're trying to get with a, uh, a like a management company, then I always say to people, you know, I get we get reached out to daily um, and we're fortunate that people seek us on a regular basis. But a lot of young, independent people, and I say young, I'm not saying in age, I mean, in industry, young in the industry, I need a manager. And so my very first question sometimes is, what do you need managed? Because a manager has to have something to manage. Right. So, well, I'm just trying to make it. I'm trying to figure out what to do and how to work. Well, you don't need a, a manager. Like a manager's got to have a career and a something to manage. So that's why the majority of our clients are stars or are working producers or working directors or writers because they have things that need to be managed, including projects they're already doing. Or, or deals that's coming down the pike that have to be negotiated. Um, like there's a real career that we're managing. So a lot of times, in my opinion, um, 
artists uh, sometimes think that they need a manager and they don't need a manager out the gate. Um, an agent, yes. But so, you know, you don't come and you just automatically end up with a CAA or an ICM or William Morris or, or a paradigm. Now, sometimes young, young kids that hit big shows or big series are with the big agencies, but that's usually because they have been on a big show and then the agency will come and swoop them up. But in the meantime, go with a smaller agency, like a really boutique style agency, and then just work your way up because while you're with these boutique agencies, Sure, you're going to get independent projects. Sure, you're going to get projects sometimes not even making any money, but that's okay. You're going to be using that to get the experience. You're going to be using that to build your reel. You're going to be using that to build your resume. Then you take that and you can get the bigger projects. You can get the bigger agent. Now suddenly you need a manager. Or a manager can see the trajectory that you're on because of the work you've already done. Hence, that's the key, the work you've already done. And now a manager can have something to dig into. Because mm-hmm. as, at that point, if like Burke Management, if we see a client or, or a talent who's already putting in the work, doing a really good job, making some headway, but just need a now you need that right agent and we can see it and we believe in it. Now I can take that person who's already done some of the work and say, hey, some of my agents, friends who are bigger agents, I can say, hey, this, I see it. They got it. Here's some of the work they've already done, but I at least have something to show. So my my advice is don't jump out the gate thinking you need a manager. Jump out the gate and go get the work. Do the work. There's so much you can do by yourself as an independent to show the work and to build that resume and the real, you can go on actors access. You can look at um, breakdowns. You can do all of this stuff. Work with friends on independent projects. You don't gotta pay me. Just let me use the footage to make use my real. Like they gotta put that work in uh, ahead of time as well. So there's a time and a place to get a manager and to seek a manager, but it is not at the beginning. How many people? Can a manager manage before a creative says, this is a problem in, in your professional opinion experience? And the creative meaning they will be a client? Right. The, if I'm an actor and, I'm, and I look at your website or, or I have a, a meeting with you and I find out you're managing X number of clients, yeah. what number makes that a red flag? Understood. It's a good question. Very good question. So... It depends on the number of your team, right? Mm, okay. So if it were just me with the 30 people that we represent, that would be too many. That would be a lot for mm. one manager to do an effective job. Now, agents can have hundreds, thousands. I, I'd say, you know, one, each agent can have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, right? Mm. A man, an agency that have several agents can have thousands, right? Mm-hmm. So, but because our team is like, I'll say eight deep between me and my brother and the rest of the team, it's like eight of us mm-hmm. because it's eight of us. And we all like, we have our own area of responsibility, so to speak, but we all are a team. And so right. everybody's responsible for everybody. And that's how we, you know, it's not like, well, my brother is only responsible for this person, this person. Now, for sure, he may have more of a, a closer relationship with a certain talent, 
but we all can pick up the phone and, and jump in and help out with that artist or that talent. And the talent, if they can't reach me, they can reach my brother. If they can't reach my brother, they can reach somebody from the team. And that person from the team is going to know everything that's going on with that talent. Because we have the team and the support team, we can now have, you know, 30 clients. We wouldn't go more than 30 um, mm-hmm. because it's, it then becomes a bit heavy. Um, but again, we have like seven or eight people that work for the firm. So to answer the question a little bit more concise, I'll say for every one body or one manager, a good number is five to 10. If it's more than 10, starts getting like, (laughs) yeah, to me, to me, there's something else I think I should add clarity to. There are two types of managers in the television and film side of the business, right? Mm-hmm. You have managers who, in an essence, are agents, right? Mm-hmm. They sit at the computer all day and they look at breakdowns all day and they submit talent to breakdowns all day, just like the agent does. Mm-hmm. Then you have managers who are kind of hands-on um around the clock, seven days a week. That's more of Burke management. Um, we, we have access to breakdowns. We used to sit and look at breakdowns all day. But our philosophy is, well, wait a minute. If our clients have great agents and the agents are doing their job, which is looking at the breakdowns all day, mm-hmm. then why are we looking at the breakdowns all day? Because what happens, Chris, is your agent and your manager. So I'm your manager and you have an agent and we, and a breakdown for a project comes out. We're going to see the same breakdown. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a Al B. Sure looking guy. (laughs) Sorry. I I love it. Between this age and this age, athletic build, blah, blah. You're going to come to mind, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to submit you. The agent's going to submit you, Right. And then the, the the producers and directors are going to see that submission. They're going to say, yeah, let's look at, let's bring him in for an audition. Who's the rep? Oh, they're rep by the same person. They'll reach out to one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. We've done double the work. So my thing was, and this is years ago, my thing was, was if the agents are doing what they're supposed to do and we're doing the same thing they're doing, wouldn't our time be better spent creating over here, right? So while the agent is doing that, we're going to be out beating the drum on creating other opportunities. We're going to work on producing some projects. And Chris, we're going to put you in this project we're producing. And you may say, hey, Burke, you know, I've got this idea that I want to produce and I want to write it and boom, boom, boom. So we'll start working on that and helping get that together and helping get funding and help put that whole and using other clients that we have access to to make your project fat. While we're doing that over here, your agent is over here submitting you and, and pitching you for other projects and getting you auditions. So that's how we found it more, most effective for our, our setup. So again, it's two types of managers. It's type, these types that kind of sit and look at breakdowns all day. And you have some that's kind of hitting the pavement in the field on the road. And that's us. When our clients go and do big shows or big events, um, mm-hmm. we usually have someone with them all the time. 
Somebody from the team will travel with our clients. Um, you know, if it's like a two or three day shoot, usually they're okay by themselves. But if they're like the lead and going to be there for a week, somebody from our office is going to be there with them the entire time. So they have a rep on on hand. So now all you have to do as an actor is focus on your lines and that's it. You don't need to worry about where's my hair and makeup? Where's the food? Where's this? Where am I supposed to be? You just focus on being on that, getting into that character that you're supposed that they're paying you to be. And you focus on that and we'll handle everything else on the ground. So that's uh that's a little bit about our setup. Yeah, it's very good. It's kind of like a gorilla t- type of management. Um, I know that term is usually safe for marketing, guerrilla marketing, where you hit the streets and you actually talk to people and do surveys and you're meeting people face to face. Nobody does that anymore because it's so expensive, but it's still the most effective type of marketing because the person can't escape you. You're like right in front of them and people tend to lie when they're behind their computer screen about everything. And they can just make a choice. So I like this idea of like having a street team, but for management, that's kind of cool where you're traveling with your talent. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've been um, referred to and I receive it, um, especially by some of our legends. And when I say legends that we represent, these are people who grew up in this industry. Um, They have often referred to us as old style Hollywood managers. Mm -hmm. I can see that. I, I never set forth to be that. I just wanted to be the best and set forth so the company can be what I felt was a the right type of management company. So one thing that I did not want to do um, coming to Hollywood is I did not want to be under other managers. I just didn't. And it took a, it took a while, a longer time for work management to like, so if you remember, I moved to California in 2002, mm-hmm. we didn't launch the company until 2007. Right. It took years to really get this laid out. We didn't sign our first celebrity until 2009, but I I said that I want this to be a crock pot management company versus a microwave management company. So, you know, microwave is fine for those that like microwave food, but you taste the food that's in a crock pot, the flavors (laughs) are in it, meat is tender, it's so good and so healthy, tastes longer but it's so much better for you. So that's how we built the company. Just really slow cooked it and and did it the right way. So um, because we did not take the lead of how other management companies did it, and I really did not want to, I'm like, well, you should read this book about management. I'm like, no, I don't want to read that because I want to, I know how I think a star should be treated. I know how I think, and I don't want anyone to tell me Nobody's doing that anymore. Nobody, no, people don't do that. So, so, and so we are kind of those old school. So if you think Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, Mm. like we're the types of managers that they had. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Kit, staying on your POV, I would like to turn the question I asked previously around, but from your POV, what are you looking for before you say, yes, I'll represent you. Yes, I'll be your manager. What are you looking for in a creative that comes to you looking for a manager? What are those attributes? So, so first and foremost, um, we've got to be able to believe in that talent and that creative. 
we've got to be able to believe in them because the reality is <clears throat> when we step in these rooms and these pitch meetings to pitch the creative, usually the creative is not there. So I've got to be able to pitch the creative with so much conviction that I can convince whoever I'm pitching to sign up for this, whatever it is, putting them in a project, funding a project, um, producing a producing with, I've got to be able to really convince and, and sell that. I should say we, cause we, our team, is, it's a, it's a group effort, right? Right. So what we look for is one, is it someone that's easy, that easy to work with because everybody's not easy to work with. It's got to be you. And, and so it's got to be the right fit for us and us for them. Right. So we we look one to see if it's going to be a good fit for us. Is, is the chemistry going to be right? So typically our process is if someone is interested, even if they're famous, it goes through my VP. Her name is Tanisha Cameron and my oldest brother, Victor Burke. They do the first leg of interviewing before it even comes to me. My brother, because he's my big brother and he know he knew me before I knew me. So, mm-hmm. so he knows me really well. He'll know what's a good fit for his young brother. He'll say, my, my brother, this wouldn't be a good fit for my brother or this would be a good fit. And he'll call me and tell me, Hey bro. So met with, you're going to love him. Or he may say, I'm going to hold my thoughts and let you, but he usually knows. So it's got to be like a really good fit for all of us. Um, and then I meet with them. And so what I meet, when I meet with them, I'm looking for the drive. I'm looking for the, you got to believe in yourself before you can get me to believe in it. So I look, I look to see, do you really believe in it? Now, a lot of times people believe in it way more than they really should. Like, okay, I know something's not going to be a good idea. Or I feel like it's happening, but they're so convinced. I'm not a dream killer, Chris. I'm not going to be like, oh, this is garbage. So I'm not going to kill the dream. I will always encourage someone to keep going, even if it's a no from us. It doesn't mean stop. It just means it's not the right fit for us. Um, Or you're going to end up being frustrated because I know we're not going to be able to give you what you are going to need in order to succeed. I've even said to some people, you're going to make it. You're going to be just fine. I, you have what, but it's not going to be beneficial with us and it's not going to work with us, but please keep doing what you're doing. You will make it. And, 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 and I, and I, I'm, I can name things and people now who are huge and doing incredible things. And I literally said that it's a no for us, but you're going to be just fine. Thank you for that. That's, Great. And I love this idea of, you know, there's such a stereotype in Hollywood of, of producers being a little too honest with creatives and people who have a dream. Uh, I've heard these horror stories of producers saying, you're never going to make it in Hollywood. You should move back where you came from. Stop doing what you're doing now. Things like that, where they could have just said no. Uh, instead they, in my, in, in their own way, fed their own ego by sort of layering on the, the, the disappointment, the denial and the no one a little bit thicker than they had to. So I, I really appreciate your, your perspective and your way of doing things there. 
you mentioned the movie Karen in the in your intro, yeah. and we are going to talk about Karen. Uh, but it makes me think about all the movies that you've that you've executive produced and you've been a part of, and yes. we lived in that world as well. You know, Bonsai. We have three feature films and global distribution. We've done some projects, short films, comedy specials, etc. And we have our own little sort of matrices on on you know, how we decide to invest and, and why. And we have a, a really long, um, I shouldn't say really long. It's a, it's a hour and a half, two hour episode just on strictly on how to invest and, and what to look for. But I'm here with you today. So I have to ask you, um, what's more important from an investment perspective for, for Van Zyl? Is it the cast, the filmmaker or the story? Which one do you look at most when you're making an investment decision? The story. Story, story over everything. Story is king. I love that. <laughs> I've always said that. And um, sometimes I'll get pushback. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes people won't even know what that means. But Nothing I would love for you more. to expound on that. A little yeah, bit. sure, man. Sure, Chris. Nothing is more important than the story. Not even me. Nothing is more important than the story. We are trying to... Because at the point, at the point you make the talent bigger than the story, then it becomes about the talent, right? Mm -hmm. Now, sure, you need the talent to tell the story. And you may have the talent that you feel that can tell that story best, but they are not the only ones who can tell that story. But that story is the only one that can tell that story, right? So unless you are not going to tell a story and you just want to have an actor because of who they are, basically free for all and improv the whole thing, then that's a different thing. But if you have a script and a story, then the star of that needs to be the story. Mm -hmm. So nothing is more important than the story. So we <clears throat> have to say that often. And now I'm going to put my executive producer hat on my pull, my, my, my management hat off. So, and, and why did I say that? Let me tell you why I said that. If you look at the films that we've executive produced, every one of them has several of our clients in them. Mm -hmm. Several, right? And it's, and it's been a gift and, and a curse. The gift is I can attach my clients to projects we're producing with no money because they're our clients. And I have back-end deals with them. I, may, I We take very good care of our clients. So that's a gift. Well, the curse becomes when they're on the project, if there's a problem with them as a talent, because they're not perfect, they're human, mm -hmm. I have to then come down on them as a producer, and as a producer with the understanding the story is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, you are a great actor. Yes, you are my client. But you're now affecting us telling this story, which then affects the investment. That can't happen. Right. So we've had to fire some of our own clients yeah, from our own projects. And that has been that has been tough. And we've had to do it on more than one occasion. But we do it, Chris, because nothing is more important than the story. <laughs> That's a great example of that. Um, I've never heard an example like that. That's but what's fascinating about it is what has to happen next. You know, your ability to keep them as a client after you fired them from set. Yes. You know, that's got to be an interesting 
and difficult dance? Well, it is, but they understand, our clients understand, nothing's more important than the story. And they understand that. And so every day, every hour costs. As a producer, you've done this, you know, it costs. So at the point where you're costing the production and you're costing because you aren't prepared or whatever reason, right? We've got to make the decision as a, and now we've got to make a business decision at this point. Right. And, and we and we have been able to, to retain every client. It's only happened like two times, maybe three times. Two times I could think of right off. And they're still clients right now. And great friends too. Because again, you know, it's, it wasn't that we just came in like, oh, you're out of here. It was like, hey, like you got to tighten up. This is what you're now holding up everything. This is a problem for the production. So like, but these are the things you got to fix. Like immediately you need more help, need more support. All good. We're going to bring that in for you. We're going to do this. We're going to make every effort to make this work. All right, let's give it another shot. Come. All right. So now it's costing us. This production is costing us 37,000 a day. I don't have that to keep paying. So we got to do what we got to do. Cause this show has got to go on. I love it. And I did a script review recently with um, a friend and at the end of it, she was just talking about how does anybody ever know when the, you know, the story's right or the script's right anyway, almost as a, as a built-in excuse for her. And I said, you'll know because people will start clamoring to it. It's the thing that no one wants to hear, but the truth is, is you'll know that your song, your story, whatever it is you're creating is great. When people start to want to buy it and be involved in it, everybody knows when something's incredible and they immediately will recognize, Hey, have the shares of this incredible thing been bought up yet? If not, I'm interested, (laughs) right? It's no one walks past a, a bar of gold on the ground. Correct. They stop, they look around. <laughs> yeah. No one, they pick it up. You're right. So that's how, you know, you, you've gotten there. We talked about your, your film, Karen, and this came out in during the pandemic, but also during a, a moment in the zeitgeist where the term Karen started to become prominent, uh, meme worthy, Twitter worthy, and it has persisted to this day. So I'm sure people still seek the movie, find the movie in searches and, and things like that. I, it it ended up being number one independent film on Apple TV and iTunes. I'm curious about, did the project get any social or cultural backlash or was it received positively for the most part or both? Can you talk about a little bit of the reaction to this movie that came out exactly at the moment yeah. this, this thing was happening in the, in the world. No, it was tough. It was tough. We shot Karen, um, the movie in Georgia and, um, I'm going to share with you a full circle moment. Please. So remember, um, I mentioned once I graduated from, uh, college, I moved to Atlanta 
And I lived in this, uh, in a suburb of Atlanta. Um, and it was like all white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that was the neighborhood I left to move to Los Angeles. Well, that was the neighborhood we shot Karen in. <laughs> and we did not, it was not planned. That was the location that their location managers found. And when we reported to set, I was just like almost in tears. And I was just like, my brother was like, what's going on? I'm like, bro, this is like, because I don't think he had really even seen the house before. And I'm like, bro, this is the neighborhood. And I went and showed him the house. Like, this is the, so just to be there now as a filmmaker um, was just incredible. But we were experiencing some real Karens while we were shooting the movie in this neighborhood. So when you see the movie, and I do encourage everyone to go see the movie, it's really it's a really good movie. I'm not just saying it. Because can we still watch it on iTunes and Apple TV? Absolutely. Yep. You can you okay. can stream it. You can watch it. You can go to Amazon Prime. You can find it there. Um, it, I, I always say because all of our films are have we we own them, meaning mm-hmm. we don't sell. We license them, license mm-hmm. them. So because it license, you know, after you know six months, a year depends. Then they go to different platforms. So um, what I would recommend is for any of the films we produce, just Google it, and then when you Google it, it'll tell you where you can watch it right there. Okay. But when you see the movie, and for those who have seen it a big portion of it in the neighborhood takes place in this cul-de-sac. And so in this cul-de-sac, we um, rented or temporarily or leased three houses in the cul-de-sac, which was all the houses in the cul-de-sac. So we leased all of them, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we did one for production and one for production and for our talent to stay in. And then the other two we used as the houses to shoot out of. And so um, the neighborhood got wind. It was a subdivision. They got wind of this show called Karen. So they started trying to protest. And then they started sending drones to record what we were doing. And people were out just causing disruptions and calling the police. But we were smart. So we hired the police to be our security. So when they would call the police, they were already there. And it was like, oh, yeah, we, uh, we're we here. What's going on? Well, they're causing a problem. Uh, no, they're not, because we already are here. We're hired to be here. So it was a lot of problems. It was also tough because um, some people took real offense to Karens. And, and so we most certainly never want to offend anybody. And so... Uh, it just kind of became a thing where uh, non-black people would say, "Why are you making a movie called Karen? Like you're you're being making being a part of the problem." And so, and that's definitely not who we are. We love everybody, and we work with everybody. That's how we were raised. So that was a little, you know, challenging just to kind of get past that part because during that time, the the racial tension in the country was really high. That was right. when the George Floyd's and all the shootings and the police brutality. Like, so a lot of that was already on, on, you know, and we were in a pandemic. So it was a lot going on during that time, but um, we did definitely had our challenges, but uh, thank God we were able to overcome them. Yeah. It's your most successful film that you've done, right? To date. Yes. So th- there's a little bit of a lesson in there, which is kind of, and you can add to this, correct it. But my sense of it is, is that, look, 
there's a story to be told. Story is king, but we also have to sell this thing. Yep. And what do we name it where, you know, our film of this size, this budget can be seen and get notoriety. And that's where you're wearing the producer hat, the filmmaker hat and the marketer hat all at the same time. Correct. Right. So if people can get past the title, then there's a lesson, there's a, there's a message in the film. Right. And I think the fact that it did so well is, is evidence of that. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and kudos to uh, Taryn Manning, um, who was a total sweetheart to work with. Um, the reason I'm, I'm pointing Taryn out is Taryn allowed us to use her name to attach to the project and didn't ask for any money or anything up front. And that's just because of the relationships. Um, I, I, her manager, um, um, her manager is Sheila Leggett of uh, Leggett Entertainment. Um, she was a very, very good friend. Um, and so I was able to deal with Sheila. And because we are friends, although we both are managers, so in, in the eyes of the world, we would be competitors. But we don't look at it like we're competitors. If I can help her, I'm going to help her. If she can help me, she's going to help me. And I told her, I need you to give us Taryn and let us attach her and let's see if we can get this thing sold because the script is so good. She'd be perfect to play our Karen and we could get this thing done. And, and they agreed. And so kudos to uh, Terry Manning for, for playing ball with this. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous actress as well. And uh, you, you've probably seen her in orange is the new black and a few other things. She's incredible. And look, the funny thing about all this is, is that, you know, I'm not big into like, you know, some of the stuff that goes on in culture now and, and the things that people want you to believe in, et cetera. But I almost find it comical that even uh, middle-aged white women would be upset with the name Karen because there's no controversy there. The, the, right. we're, a Karen is a description of a person who is using their affluence and influence in the community to get what she wants, even though she doesn't deserve it and shouldn't get it. And oftentimes does that by calling the manager or calling the cops. Right. And you can be a Karen even without doing it to a minority. Right. Right. It's just a type of person in culture who causes a stir and makes a fuss when she's told no. Right. Basically. Yep. Or when she's her environment is sullied in some way that she doesn't approve of. There's no controversy there. I don't I can't imagine that any middle-aged white woman would want to identify and say, I'm defending my right to be a Karen. Why? Right. You would want to be that. You mentioned shooting in Atlanta, uh, companies in LA, Beverly Hills in particular. And this is a great opportunity for those listening to sort of get a sense of the difference between the two places, the two communities. You know, you have Georgia, which is the uh, number one global spot for film production and TV production. They spent $1.2 billion in subsidies last year alone, about 20, 30% higher than the next place. But then you have LA, which is just sort of the home of the film industry in the world. So can you describe the differences between the LA and Atlanta film communities? Yes. So how shall I say? 
there will only be one Hollywood. Mm. Hollywood is Hollywood and there will never be another. That's not to slight or take anything away from Atlanta or Georgia. I'm born and raised in Georgia. I love Georgia. Absolutely love Georgia. Uh, Georgia has done an incredible job in this space um, by encouraging people and productions to shoot there because of the tax benefits. Um, Hollywood is a lot more expensive to shoot films here. Um, the benefits are, are hard to get and they're not as high. There's not, they're not as high as the benefits in Georgia, Georgia, they're easier to get and way higher. So why wouldn't you shoot there? Here's the, here's the challenge. The challenge is because Hollywood is Hollywood. We have way more actors in Hollywood. We have way more crew in Hollywood. Um, so when you are dealing with Atlanta or Georgia, you're not going to have as many crew everywhere, as many actors. So um, it could be harder to get quality crew in Atlanta or in Georgia because usually the quality ones are already on projects because it's going to be constant projects. As you just mentioned, it's the largest, it's the largest productions hub right now is Atlanta. So because that they are working and they're working a lot and they're getting the good work. So when you're coming in as a smaller independent production, not these big major majors, you're coming in as a smaller independent. And when I say smaller, even $2 million or $2.5 million project is small compared to a $20 million project, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're not going to get that, that creme de la creme crew a lot mm -hmm. of times. It's going to be a lot harder. Whereas L.A., you have a lot of great crew people here. Um, and, and they and they're ready and willing to work. Not that they're not in Atlanta, but it's just more in LA that's available. Right. So that was that's one of the things you know that we found. If we lost someone from the crew, like a, even a key, we could have a key replaced, and a key a key we can have a key replaced in no time, right. an hour. They're on the way. <laughs> it's going to be a lot harder in Georgia to replace a key. Right. And get a good quality key. That's been my experience. Yeah, that's, that's important. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier that someone when you got started said, Hey, read this book on management. You're like, I don't want to read this book on management. I have my own vision. But I'm sure just being who you are and your background, you do some reading uh, and have some books that have inspired you. Are there any books that you'd recommend uh, on the either well, I won't even contextualize it. Just what, what, what books would you recommend for this audience? Absolutely. So, so I read, so right now I'm reading the master key system. Mm. Um, and the master key system is by Charles Hannell, H A N N E L Charles. And the master key system is an incredible, incredible book. And I'm reading that now. I also I also um, have read uh, the Five AM Club by Robert Sharma. Um, I I study Robert Sharma 
Um, I go to his YouTube and I listen to his videos daily. Um, and then, then like those are the main books that I read right now. There's another book called Scaling Up that I, um, and these are all business books and just kind of um, how to build businesses, how to deal with people, how to approach issues and problems and conflict resolution. And then also just how to sit with yourself and get the mindset right. That's what the master key system is, is just kind of working on self. So um, one thing that um, happened when I was producing Karen, it was very, it was a very, it was a tough movie to, to produce. It was tough. Yeah, it sounds because, like Yeah, it was very tough because it was like, a, you know, it was just under $3 million to do it. Um, we were not able to get bonded because during the pandemic, nobody was bonding projects because we didn't know what was going on with this pandemic. Right. So you couldn't get a bond. So that means, and, 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 um, you know, the bond. Just, can I just jump in? Oh, you were going to tell you guys, cause yeah, I was going to so tell the audience what a bond was. Yeah. So, you, bond, you go ahead. Yeah. Yep. so the bond is basically, it's an insurance policy yep. that protects your investors. So, um, I hate to use this example, but, um, but the Alec Baldwin movie, um, when, the, when the, yes, yes, exactly. When that shooting happened and that incident happened, I should say, and, and the DP, um, was killed, that movie production had to stop. Um, but because they were bonded, their investors did not lose the money. Their insurance kicked in and paid their investors the money back. So that's important that a film over a million dollars has a bond so investors don't lose their money in the unfortunate. Uh, now, if the movie gets completed and it doesn't make money, the bond insurance doesn't pay. You. That's But if it shuts down for something that's uncontrollable, then that bond insurance is there. Well, we yeah. couldn't get bonded. Uh, which means it was going to be a big risk for our investors to put up that money to shoot it because what if COVID comes in and shuts us completely down and God forbid somebody dies from COVID on set and now we can't finish the movie. The movie, So we couldn't get it bonded. So that was one of the many problems we were having. Um, Chris, I was stressing out. I was waking up like, on fire, just, just out the gate, dealing with problems. And, and, and it was just tough. So my business partner, who's my main investor now, he's our main investor now. That's another whole story, but he's been phenomenal. He's a doctor, he's a surgeon, um, but he's our main investor that funds our films now. He has been big on meditation and reading. And he said to me, he calls me V, he's like, V, uh, man, you're going to have a heart attack or a stroke if you don't start <laughs> reading and getting wow. grounded because you are just, you wake up on 10 and you go in and you're not even, you got to get grounded. So I started reading. So he started recommending books and meditating. So I start my day with meditation and prayer. I won't pick up a phone call. My brother knows. He'll call me. He says, brother, have you had your coffee? Have you meditated? He knows that if there are those two, I can't, I'm not talking. I'm not doing anything until I do that. And I'm going to read a portion of the master key system is what we're reading. Now, my brother reads the same book as well. Okay. So we read together. We discuss together. 
um, yeah, but that's a big part of uh, the life, and that's what keeps uh, keeps me grounded. Also, what's the best piece of advice you've received in your career, and who did it come from? Well, the biggest piece of advice came from my dad, and dad has always encouraged us to, if you're going to do it, then do it, and if you're not going to do it, don't do it. And I knew exactly what that meant, which means don't half step and do anything. If you're Mm -hmm. going to go out and be a producer, then go be the best producer. If you're going to go be a manager, go be the very best manager. And if you're not going to be the very best, and if you're not going to be the very best and do your very best, then don't do it at all. That was for my dad. As a professional, and again, my dad uh, left us before he could see this side of us, but I know he can see it. I can feel it. He's here, right? So he knows exactly what his boys are doing, and he's proud, and that makes us proud. But my business, uh, uh, you know, my business partner and our investor um, gives us advice all the time, but uh, but I won't give you the advice that he has given us. The next advice I'm going to give is from a former client who's a good friend and a producing partner now. Um, we just were not able to really effectively manage her. We were younger, a younger company, um, mm-hmm. but we just thought it'll be better that we work as producing partners together and friends, and we have a wonderful relationship. But it's the phenomenal actress, Victoria Rao. Um, you guys may know her from uh, The Young and the Restless or Drusilla from The Young and the Restless. Phenomenal actress, writer, director, producer now. I've got my first experience as a producer working with her. And I'm forever grateful for that. But the biggest piece of advice she gave me, we were doing our first project together called The Rich and the Ruthless. And we did four seasons of that. Um, and it's on All Black and BET right now. Yep. So um, so we've been fortunate. Everything we produce as Burke Management and Benzel Burke has gotten distribution. So that's been incredible. But that project, I'll tell you, was a little bit over $100,000 the first season. And she got that from one investor. And she told me, she said, Benzel, she said, when you get money from your investors, get it back to them, whatever you do. She says, because if you get them, them their money back, even if they don't make money, but if you at least get them their money back, they will always give you money. But get mm-hmm. your investors their money. Don't you even take a dime until you get them their money back. So that's what we do. So when we take money from investors, and again, thankfully, we are fortunate enough to go usually to one investor now. But if I get a dime from an investor, my goal is to get you at least 12 cent back, at least 12 cent. But if I can't get you 12 cent, you can count on you getting that dime back. I'm not taking a penny. I'm not taking a penny. And I usually put that in my deal I will work, I will produce, I won't take a salary, nothing until I make sure you're whole. Then I'll take a salary once you're whole. Kudos. Kudos to you for that, man. Um, I've mentioned, and me and my business partner, Nick, have mentioned that so many times in our indie talks. These are like episodes where, where we're just talking about the industry where we don't have necessarily a, a interview going on. But 
we're always shocked when we see producers that that have investors and they aren't working hard and you know they feel like hey my fee was in the was in the budget and we're, we're good and they just don't realize that hey we're your angels we're the people that believe in you we're the people who are going to keep believing in you and want to see you go a place are we self-interested in the most positive way possible yes um but we but we're the ones that believe in you so thank you for saying that yeah what do you think are the biggest mistakes filmmakers make and uh, what advice would you give them to maybe avoid those mistakes? One big mistake is, and it could be actors. I should just say creatives in general that you work with. One, one mistake I say is not starting something, Mm. right? You, you gotta just start something. You have to, you have to, if you believe in it, start putting together a plan and start something. Don't just, don't just uh, think it to death, right? Don't be afraid to pull the trigger and go for it, especially if you believe in it. Um, that, that is a, that is a mistake. And I think the way you avoid it, but plan and, and put in the proper planning to do it right. Don't just, you know, I want to start shooting a movie and I have a script and I need, you know, uh, $200,000. I got $30,000. Now I'm going to go just start tomorrow. Well, that's not, I'm not necessarily saying that, but definitely put together the plan and really, and put a date, like put a stake in the ground. We're going to start on this date. Then that's what you work towards. Even if you have to change the date and push it out a little bit, at least you got to put something in the ground. You got to put a stake. So that's the big mistake is don't procrastinate. Don't, don't, don't plan it to death. Don't think it through to death. Like just go for it. It's not necessarily for filmmakers, but outside of the actual craft that's in the movie itself. Uh, But for entrepreneurs, I always say one of the best movies that never get listed as best entrepreneur movies is there will be blood with Daniel Day Lewis? Uh, most people will, will say Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or like some other sales type movie like that, and there and those are great in their own right. But the one that's underrated is There Will Be Blood, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, and Paul Dano. It's an amazing movie, and if you really want to see what it's like to start your own business and have no safety net, and the type of mindset you have to have to do it. That is uh, the movie for you. Now, in, invariably, no question, someone listening is going to be inspired by you today. Uh, someone oh. is going to be inspired when they hear this. And so with that understanding, me just knowing that's going to happen, someone is going to say, okay, what if I want to be like Vanzel? Like, what if I want to go be a talent manager? So what are the first three things you would teach someone that just made the decision today that they're going to be a talent manager? What would be the first three things you'd teach them on their, on their training to be a talent manager themselves? People first. Mm-hmm. Okay. People first. Um, well, I should say God first, but that's just kind of quite naturally, but people first, mm-hmm. not money, integrity. Mm-hmm honesty as a talent rep you've got to have those three down the people first nothing's more important than the people people first 
You have to have integrity. This is a, a, a business where that's all you have. And then that honesty, you just have to have that real honesty. People first means if there's a project that a client is asked to do and it's a good payday, mm-hmm. but I know it's not the right project for them, I'm not going to say, but we really could use that commission. So let's do that when I know it's not the right project for them. People first. I have to think about where you're going as a career. Do I think that this is a good role for you? And you are have a and you are a young parent with children that's going to see this or parents. Would they like? I think we think about all of that before we take projects. People first, then integrity. You have to have a high level of integrity to be in this business and as a rep and to do it the right way, a high level of integrity because as a talent rep, I literally represent somebody. So what, so, so when I am done with this interview, while I'm out about in the streets or in LA or Beverly Hills, I am still a rep for very famous people. I have to have the right amount of integrity. I can't go and curse people out. I can't act stupid. I can't be out drinking and drunk because if something were to happen, it becomes such and such as manager was seen doing this. Mm-hmm. Such and such as manager was because I represent them. So that's in, that integrity has always got, I'm going to always treat people right. We as a company are going to treat people right. And everyone who works with work management has had that same philosophy. So we ask these questions when we're interviewing. I had to go through this with my oldest brother too, yeah. like to make sure he understands what our philosophy is. And then just being honest, having that honesty, be honest to, to tell, to be able to tell someone, hey, Chris, you, this is, you, this, that ain't it, bro. That's not it. You got to try it again. God, I know you can do better, but that's not it. As opposed to, okay, yeah, that looks good. That sounds good, Chris. Yeah, it's like, if it doesn't, I've got to be able to be honest with my with our clients and say, that ain't it. Or, you know, we have to have hard conversations sometimes. You're not you're not looking polished. You you know, just being honest because that goes a long way. That goes a long way. I love all three of those. And I think people first would probably be for people who are are good people sort of <laughs> from the jump. People yeah. first would be the hardest one to learn, but there are other people who just, they are kleptomaniacs. They are uh, affected by vices. And then I think that number two, number three, that integrity, honesty part starts to get really, really difficult. Now mm-hmm. on the actual tools and tech side of this, if you were to start, if someone was to start a, a management firm, talent management firm, is there any software or tools that you use or that you'd recommend they use to start their business or to track or manage their clients? Um, so, I mean, listen, the, the, the tool that we use in the industry is IMDB pro, right? So okay. I would say definitely you need, would need IMDB pro sign up, pay for it. Um, you can't really do anything on a real level without having IMDB. Pro. Right. 
as far as any other tools and then you know breakdowns it's just good to kind of be in the mix with breakdowns and then also just having access to the trades so you kind of can be in the know so variety variety uh, hollywood reporter yeah you know just just so you're aware and being in the know love it Airline. Very, very good. there are some interesting tools coming out imdb pro will always be i think sort of home base because they took the time, they did the work, as you said earlier, to, to sort of build that reputation. Mm-hmm. I know Variety has vScore. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to sort of compete with vScore. Uh, there's a service called Luminate that's really interesting, but yeah. you know, incredibly pricey. But if you're in the industry, uh, it might it might feel worthwhile to to get into that because it has all these breakdowns and and you can export them and have them as your own so spreadsheet. So shout out to to illuminate as, as well. If you guys want to mm-hmm. look that up without naming names, or if you want to name names, you can, have you ever had a celebrity uh, that you've had to turn down as a client? So they're already a celebrity. Uh, and, and if so, why? So um, there's been a couple of times that we've had to turn down um, celebrities um, as clients, as potential clients. And the reason why is when we first started, if you were a celebrity, we would sign you, right? And and it was almost like clockwork. But then um, after a while, we started really understanding. We started really understanding who we were as a management company and the types those values of, you talked about before. Those values and making sure that we are a good fit for people and people are a good fit for us. Right. So if we know because I've been doing this so long now, literally since I was a kid, because and and I didn't go into that, but we were managing me and my brother were managing people since I was in middle school and he was in high school. So because I've been dealing with talent so long, I now have gotten that piece where I know based on conversations and what you're looking for, if we're going to be a good fit for them. So there's one um, very famous person in, in particular. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan, which was yes. even harder. I am a fan um, and and love the work. But we were in a meeting and my brother and I were meeting with this person and we just kind of looked at each other and it's like, I we love it and we love you, but it's not going to be a good fit for us. We would sign now. We will get champagne and toast and everybody's happy. But I can guarantee you four months down the road, five months down the road, they're going to be very frustrated. You're going to be very frustrated because what you're looking for is, in our opinion, a little bit unrealistic. And, and, and not to say you shouldn't go get it, but we are not the ones that are going to try to get that for you. And it's going to end up being very frustrating. Yeah, we don't want to do that, and so um, yeah, so we we just have gotten better at saying no. Do you ever have to deal with writers for for your clients? Writers, yeah, like uh, um, R I D E R, yeah, like uh, like. What's yeah. the strangest writer that you've that you've been again without naming any names? If you don't want to, have you um, ever had any super strange writers in a contract? No, I, I'm not gonna going to say super strange. Um, <laughs> so, and the reason I say super strange is because with the people that we represent and that we 
like we manage people who need to be managed, right? Mm-hmm. So we usually as part of our questions are two questions. One, are you manageable? And then two, do you need management? Like, do you need management? Because everyone doesn't need management. Like we had uh, uh, another very famous person on big show, but they just didn't need management because they do so much for themselves. Right. Yeah. And so it just, it just, they need management, but not our style of management because we're very hands on and you'll see where I'm going with this. So because we're very hands on and we are good with signing on people who need to be managed, we just kind of, so they come in and they listen to us. So we get a, what are you, what would you like in your rider? And they all want this. We was like, yep, no, we're not doing that. No, no. <laughs> well, here's your rider and you're going to be very happy with it. And, and our clients trust us and they usually, they trust us and they say, yep, okay, this is good. I'm glad I'm happy with this. So it's been nothing crazy. We, yeah. we kind of do a little bit more than they need sometimes. Um, like, you know, we're going to make sure they have security and they, you know, it's, we just are very protective of our clients. Well, I don't think I need all that. Like, you don't realize what you need. We know what you need and this is what you need. And then they get there like, oh my God, I'm so glad I had that because I didn't realize like, yeah, but that's what we're here for. Yeah. When I think about Burt management, I think about this concept of adding stars. I, I want to say this came from Derek Sivers. But I could be wrong about that. I'll have producer Elise and Papa Bear double check me on this. But, you know, the idea is that, you know, if you go to a hotel and it's a three star hotel, the hotel uh, manager might ask, how do I make this a four star experience? Okay, now, how do I make it a five star experience? Right. And you don't have to stop there. How do I make it six star, seven star, eight star? And when I think about what you're accomplishing and doing every day, I think to myself, Vanzil sits back and says, okay, we got a five star experience right now for this client. What will we have to do to make it six? hundred percent. You got it. And I really appreciate that about your approach. Now tell me if this is true or not, but I think when you were a child, you got to see, LL Cool J up close when he came to Albany State University for a homecoming concert. Yes. But you were less interested in LL and more interested in his manager who was running around putting out fires, which, as we were told, was the spark that actually made you want to potentially even be a manager in the first place. So tell us about that story. And then... Are you still the kind of guy who is more interested and gets enjoyment from putting fires out? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, um, so the story is true. Um, as I mentioned to you before, we were in a rap group, or as you brought up, Funky Fresh yeah. Crew. And so um, we we go. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something really corny. Uh, I'm gonna show you. Oh, please. Okay, so this. Uh, let's see if I can. So, yeah, I see it. I see it. You're framed okay. up now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look so, at that. There he is. LL. Yeah. So that's me in the blue shirt. That's my middle brother, the other rapper uh, in the white T-shirt and the LL in the middle. And if you see behind, you see pay phones back there, right? Mm-hmm. So my oldest brother, Victor, is one that took that picture. What happened is Victor, um, 
uh, wanted me to take a picture with LL. I was so scared, but I go and take the picture with them. Um, and then after we take the picture, my brother, my middle brother goes off to the corner, talk to LL. His manager then comes and uses that payphone, And I'm just standing there, just still kind of in shock. And the manager is talking to who I'm pretty sure was like the next city that they were going to. And he was like, not yelling, but it was very intense conversation. Yeah. And so he's in this intense conversation with them. And I was like kind of nervous and scared listening to him um, talk to this guy or whomever he was talking to. And then he kind of, everything kind of de-escalates and he gets it all back together. It's like, all right, great. We'll be there in the morning, blah, 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 blah. Fine. So after we, uh, after that was over, we walk over to LL and I'm just standing next to the manager and the DJ, which was uh, Bobcat, I think it was. And LL kind of looks at him and says, Hey, how's everything going? Everything good. And then the manager's like, yep, everything's perfect. And I was just thinking, no, it was like World War II just a minute ago. World War II. <laughs> but then the manager yeah. looked at me and winked, right? So yeah. he's like, well, everything's all good. We're all set. And he looked at me and winked. And what I knew, I understood what that meant, which is LL just needs to stay focused on being the star. I'm dealing with the drama and I've already handled it. Everything's taken care of. And so that's when I was thinking, I'm like, so managers are the fixers. They're the ones that take care of everything. And I'm like, I want to be, I want to be that guy. I want to support the star. I want to be that guy. And so that was always kind of like one of those things that was my motivation um, as a, as a child and as a kid to kind of do that. And so although I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be rich, when that Hollywood opportunity came up to go to Hollywood, I'm like, I want to be a manager. And that's always been that piece. Believe it or not, I got a chance to see LL as an adult in Beverly Hills and was able to let him know and share that that weekend changed my life. And, and his team made me want to be and do what I'm doing now. And so I showed him that picture and he says, you're not going to believe me, but I remember this picture. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't believe you. And he was like, he was like, it was somewhere down South. He said, because I just started, like that was me when I was first starting. And he's like, and I was in, I want to say Georgia. I said, bro, I said, it was Albany, Georgia. He said, yep, Albany, Georgia. And so I believed him. He said, I remember this time. So that just meant a lot That's to incredible. me. But, um, but it felt so good to be able to come full circle to let him know, thank you for being so kind to this little kid because I was very comfortable, which then made me get close to his manager at the time and help open a little kid's eyes to what he could do. And so I, so I always tell my clients who are big stars, be kind to your fans. When they're talking to you, put your phone down. When someone wants to take a picture, put your phone down and give them that moment. Even if it's for a minute or a second, give them that moment because you never know how impactful that'll be for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's huge. I think Dan Patrick once said, for the star, it's a forgettable moment. For the person asking for the autograph or the picture, it's the moment they'll remember for the rest of their life. Literally. And so as a star, just remember that. Literally. That 
that you're engaged in a moment that is going to be potentially a keystone moment in their life. Yes. yes. And it's happening to you all the time. Yes. So that's a good way to, to certainly think about it. And, uh, you know, you, the universe smiles on you, Vanzil. And I'll tell you what, you've, you've, you've smiled on the Make It podcast today. You've been so generous with your time. Uh-huh. I have just one or two more questions and we'll, we'll, we'll get you out of here. Um, you mentioned your dad as a through line in this entire conversation. Yes. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind describing the last conversation you had with your dad. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So my dad had a brain tumor. He died from glioblastoma multiforme. Um, it's the brain tumor that killed Donald Cochran and, and John McCain. And um, it's a devastating, horrible uh, form of cancer. And the last conversation that I had with my dad, uh, you know, he just encouraged uh, he just encouraged me to, to keep going and don't stop. Um, you know, that, that he was hopeful to be around, um, but he wasn't sure what God had planned for him. Um, and always take care of mom and to just never give up and just always go. And he's very proud of us. Um, and he says, and no matter what, make sure you finish school. Um, I was a junior in college when I lost him. And so that was the last conversation that I was able to have with him. And then um, for about the next three weeks, he was, you know, really not able to talk. Uh, and then he transitioned. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I know that, you know, in that last, well, first of all, just, just from researching, taking the time to research everything I could, um, about you, which is, you know, what we do here, obviously. But, um, I could just tell that he was an incredibly impactful you know, person and, and that you're hell bent on keeping all the promises you made to him about what you were going to do with your life, do it yourself and how you're going to treat people and treat the world. And that, that, um, it's a, it's a tough way to, to get to that point. Um, you know, I've lost my mom, but, but I'm lucky to, to still have my dad around. So, um, you know, you, you, um, you don't want to take it for granted and I say, and you certainly don't. So I, I yeah. think that's in- incredible. You work with a lot of talent, a lot of actors, mm-hmm. and I hear this a lot from actors that the rejection that happens, you know, in the, in the, on a casting call, on an audition, whatever it may be, just in daily life, magazines, publicity, et cetera. Twitter gossip. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to manage your mental health in Hollywood as a celebrity or as someone who's trying to become a household name. And I'm sure also as a person who has to manage people that are going through that, you go through the same thing. So I'm just curious if you've been in a dark place before and if so, how did you get out of it? So, um, because I'm so spiritual, I can't say that I've been in a dark place before um, like that um, because I am very spiritual. So I kind of I know where my help comes from and I know um, where like I pull my strength from God and not from man. Mm-hmm. So a man telling me no 
doesn't, I mean, that's like my brother says, when I'm told no, that's the beginning of my negotiating because I'm going to give that yes, right? So yeah. I'm not saying that I, I'm, I'm perfect and I don't have bad days because I do, but I don't really go into dark places. Now, as it relates to my talent and our clients um, who do get told no a lot regularly and, and can get and get beat up the way we do, we do two things. One, when they go in audition, we tell them don't, and we stress this, don't audition for the role, audition mm-hmm. for the room. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you go in, don't even think about getting that role. Just audition, impress the producers, impress the directors, impress the casting director with your audition, period. Because even if it's a no, they if you kill it, they'll remember that they will remember that another role may come up for that same project or a role will come up for uh, another project they're involved with and they're going to remember. Remember that audition that such and such did? They will get, and that's where the direct offer comes from. We do it all the time as producers. We're casting shows that we're producing and we will remember an amazing audition that we did not select them to be in that role for whatever reason, but we remember they'll be perfect for this project because of that audition. Remember, go pull that tape. I think the name was so-and-so. Go pull that tape. And we'll look at it. Yep, yep that's a, make them a direct offer. Happens all the time. Really? Yes. Wow. So don't be discouraged if you don't get a role. Just my thing is, did you have a great audition? Did you audition for the room? And did you leave a good impression? Man, I killed it. I felt good. Great. We won already. Whether you get that role or not. Right. It's it's like it's a, it's a temperament thing. Yeah. And, and I also think even though it may not have been your intention, uh, your intention, uh, you did kind of answer the question though, which is, I think, Hey, find something to be spiritual about. It yeah. could be, it could be religion. It could be something else. And you've talked about it a few times in this conversation, the power of meditation. Yes. Um, I can attest to that having, uh, restarted my meditation practice, for the same reason your doc, your, your doctor friend, your surgeon friend told you, yeah, I'm waking up, I'm on 10 yep. high stress. I started to get it back. Benzel, you know why? Because I found that I was starting to get short with the people I love the most. They would talk to me, they'd say something to me and I'd snap at them. Yeah. That's not like me. I'm a yep. fun, love, fun, loving light guy. Yep. And all of a sudden I'm snapping at all these people who are, who love me the most. Yeah. And kids included. And I was like, I've got to take a chill pill. I've got to relax. I've got to lower the stakes a little bit uh, in terms of of how I view myself, because the the part that was really getting me was that I was viewing myself in a negative light because I wasn't getting what I wanted all the time. Right. And that spirituality, um, you know, we're real close. We, our, our mentors were, uh, you know, Dick Gregory and uh, close to the Gregory family. And he's the one that actually got us into this business and uh, in, in, in an indirect way. And he would, he's always given the advice, Hey, go out in the morning and just get some sunlight on your face for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know? So even that can help you if you're in a dark place and, yeah. and, and um, 
and even you can even make that meditative and spiritual. So mm-hmm. there's lots of ways to get through it. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you. The, the time that you've given has been incredible. I know this is going to be super valuable. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, where they can see some of your work, where they can get in touch with you and how they can find cocaine sisters. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, so I'm on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Burke M G M T as in management. So Burke B as in boy, U R K E M like Mary G like good M like Mary T like Tom Burke M G M T and Facebook Vanzel Burke first and last name. Um, and then our project cocaine sisters can be found on urban flicks TV. So if you go to Apple store or Google play and just type in urban flicks, that's U R B A N flicks, F L I X urban flicks TV. Uh, the app pops up and there you go. And you can, and we have two shows that we've executive produced on that platform. Um, Cocaine Sisters and Ho Phase, spelled H E A U X E Phase. That's another whole project. Um, they're they're great. They're both they're both very very great projects. Ho Phase is a eleven episode series, uh, and Cocaine Sisters will be fifteen episodes. Incredible! And you have a couple of other shows, and we'll end on this. Uh, Critter Fixers. Right. And on Nat Geo, I'm curious, what is the most unusual critter they've ever found on Critter Fixers or or that you've seen? I will say a camel. (laughs) And so they say, they call and say, we're working on a camel. I said, but bro, we live in middle Georgia. What are you doing? What what is a camel doing in middle Georgia? I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll say a camel. It's a great question because this is a true story. It is sad, but it's also funny. In I want to say Camden, Tennessee, which is, I mean, it's it can't have more than fifty thousand people. It's it's a small town, like just like you come from. Two men were killed by a camel, and I was like, I was like, what is a camel doing in Tennessee? Right, and how did he kill him? Uh, he got angry. He the camel got loose. And he, somebody got too close to the camel, camel messed him up. Yeah. Wow. And so I think what happened, Vanzel, is that there are these exotic traders Um, that take these camels and weird animals, not weird animals, but just animals from different places. Yeah. And they bring them over to Florida. And then the people in Florida can't maintain it, kind of like Tiger King or whatever. Right. And then they escape. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that's how you get a camel in Georgia. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> they they migrate. Camel, camel migrates up. <laughs> All the way to Georgia. <laughs> Imagine being on a hike and seeing a camel instead of a deer. Camel. Yeah. That's the best. <laughs> that's the best. And so are you, man. Next time I'm out in LA, I, I got to look you up. Let's uh, eat some coffee. No, let's do it. Whatever we're going to do. And I know we'll stay in touch, man. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. Anytime. Be good. Take care. Peace. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them 
not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get any insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening. Listening.